This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thanks so much to um, Caitlin and her colleagues, Holly and Erin, and If, When, How for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I love speaking to groups of law students because um, you're actually not completely beaten down yet by the uh, life of being a lawyer and the prospect of practicing anti-discrimination law, um, which takes on a whole new meaning these days, um, for sure. It is a new era. So I'm thrilled at the turnout. Thank you all for being here. Can I just have a quick show of hands just um, to to gauge folks' knowledge? How many in the room have taken some sort of employment discrimination class? Okay, not many of you. Okay, that's fine. I speak to non-legal audiences all the time. I was just just trying to get a sense. So... um, what, I'm going to give you a bit of an overview about what the book is about, um, talk with you about some of the themes that um, are at the fore of, of the book um, uh, relating to women's involvement in the workplace over the past 50 years that Title VII has been in place, and then I hope to leave some time for questions um, so folks can ask about you know, where we are now with the precedents that are outlined in this book as they... Um, I d- d- um, deliberately chose cases that continue to be evergreen, and although they're, they're changing um, and evolving, they, they remain good law. So where we are now with those cases um, will be, will be um, hopefully some subject of Q&A. So um, the title of the book, Because of Sex, um, uh, refers to the language in Title VII itself, which is extremely bare bones. Discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, religion, and color, and sex uh, is prohibited. Now, there's not a whole lot of definition about what sex means. In fact, in fact, there's really none. There's definition about what discrimination means. It's differential treatment in the terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. Um, but sex was actually added uh, virtually at the last minute to Title VII. Uh, the law was close to passing, and um, uh, Representative Howard Smith, a virulent segregationist from Virginia, stood up on the last day of floor debate and announced that he had an amendment, and he wanted to add sex to the law. Um, this was met with a great deal of um, laughter and derision, and no one was really sure if he was serious. And in fact, it has become kind of an urban legend that he uh, proposed the sex amendment as a joke, as a poison pill to try to sink the whole bill. In other words, sure, maybe there would be legislators who were willing to vote for equal rights for African Americans, okay, but women, come on, they wouldn't vote for that, so that would make the bill go down if sex was in there. But Actually, more recent scholarship has concluded that it was more a more subtle reality than that, uh, as reality often is, and that um, Howard Smith actually was a long-standing supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment, which had been proposed practically since the days of suffrage, um, suffrage protests, um, and um, the supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment, who were mostly white and upper class were um, alarmed that this bill was going to be enacted that arguably gave more rights to African-American women by virtue of their race, let alone African-American men, um, than white women. And so there was a lot of pressure brought to bear on Howard Smith to include sex 
Um, thankfully, there was also a, a nice um, critical mass of women in the House of Representatives who also favored adding sex, and so they were more than happy to have this conservative mouthpiece putting forward this amendment. Um, so it did pass, but without any of the committee hearings or other usual sources of um, legislative history that courts look to to give meaning to statutes. And so we're left with these three barebone words, because, discrimination because of sex shall be prohibited. And so this book starts with that as its premise, that it was left to the courts and more specifically <laughs> to the brave women and their lawyers who brought cases forward to use this statute, it was up to the courts to give contour um, and meaning to these three simple words. So um, one, one quick note, of course, Title VII also established the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, my former employer, um, as the um, federal agency charged with enforcing Title VII. But the EEOC was just as perplexed as many of Howard Smith's um, colleagues about what in the world they were supposed to do with this provision. They thought Title VII was going to be a race discrimination law, and that's what they were prepared to enforce. And there are statements on the record from, uh, you know, to the press from leadership of the EEOC in the first years after Title VII was enacted in 1964, saying things like, oh, the sex provision was a, was a fluke that was conceived out of wedlock and uh, that it was a joke. And one head of the EEOC said to reporters, don't worry, I don't expect any men to have to hire any male secretaries. Um, so the EEOC was very slow to do any sort of really affirmative um, enforcement of that provision, and they didn't even have the right to bring litigation to enforce Title VII until 1972. So they were very slow to say that sex-segregated want ads violated the law. They were very slow. Um, to address pregnancy. They didn't know what to make of pregnancy. Um, they didn't know what to do with all the flight attendants who were subject to various cutoffs for um, when they reached a certain age or if they got married or if they gained a few pounds or if they, um, uh, or if they got, got pregnant. Um, so again, it was, it was left, this space was sort of left open um, for women and their attorneys to come forward and, and define what sex discrimination was. So there are three main areas in the book that, um, that the cases fall into, three main sort of themes of women's identity that were at odds with the protections of Title VII, protection from discrimination that the courts had to grapple with. And they're all still equally thorny and difficult today. The first is pregnancy and motherhood, right? What does equality look like when only women can get pregnant? Um, Number two, the issue of stereotypes. And um, I think that's very much in our lexicon now, sex stereotyping. You know, men are supposed to act a certain way and women are supposed to act a certain way. But when it was first proposed and put before the Supreme Court in a case that was decided in the late 80s, that was actually um, you know, not something that was, that was commonly understood. But it's even broader than a sex stereotype about how you're supposed to look and act and dress, but even what you're supposed to enjoy doing, what kind of work you're supposed to be good at, what kind of work are you good at? Are there certain jobs that are men's jobs and women's jobs by nature? That was very much part of the, um, part of the accepted wisdom among a lot of judges and a lot of the public when Title VII was passed. And then finally, sexual harassment. Those are words that don't appear in Title VII. It was a concept that didn't have a name in 1964 when the, when the statute was enacted. So again, 
This was a, um, a, an academician-created, court-adopted um, notion of what inequality looks like. So those are the three kind of um, major areas. And I'm just going to highlight a few of the cases in the book to give you a sense of, um, of how these issues played out. So the first um, is actually the first case in the book, and it involves um, Ida Phillips, who is pictured here with six of her seven children. Um, and in 1966, she was a mother of seven living in um, Florida, in Orlando. Um, and she was married, but her husband was pretty much a ne'er-do-well and drank everything he earned. So she was, for all intents and purposes, a single mother. She worked as a waitress at the Donut Dinette. And uh, she took all of her earnings every day and put some into savings and, and bought some dinner for the night. And that was how she scraped by. She learned from a neighbor that the Martin Marietta um, defense contractor plant um, in Orlando was hiring, and jobs on the assembly line paid double what she was earning as a waitress, plus they came with benefits, um, just like many manufacturing jobs now. Um, uh, you know, pension plan, health benefits for her kids, those were things that, that she needed desperately. Um, so she drove down to, the, um, to Martin Marietta to get in line to get an application, and when she got to the front of the line, the um, receptionist asked her if she had any children who were under the age of five. And she did. She had a daughter, Gracie, who is pictured in the, in the picture here. And um, Gracie was, was three at the time. Now, um, uh, Ida Phillips had childcare all set up, but that didn't matter to the receptionist. She said the company has a policy, women with small children not eligible for hire. Men with small children were eligible for hire, but women were not. And can anyone guess what the reasoning is behind that policy? Women are unreliable. They're going to be the first line of, um, of uh, defense if a child gets sick. They have to take time off. They're going to be distracted worrying about what's going on at home. Um, they're going to arrive late and leave early. They're going to be not dependable, not committed workers. And whereas husbands or fathers, of course, were assumed to have a wife at home handling all of those issues for them. So she was turned away. Um, her neighbor, who had sent her to, to look for the, apply for the job, was disgusted because he had small kids. And um, so she filed, she, um, she sent a letter, and this letter is actually um, in, quoted in the book and is in the courthouse now in Orlando, the federal courthouse. She sat down the day she was denied and wrote a letter to Lyndon Johnson, president at the time. And she was not a really, really politically aware person, but she knew that he was pushing civil rights and, and equality generally. And she wrote him a letter that's quoted in the book and where she said, I have been turned down for this job, and um, it's only because I have small children, and surely you can do something about this. Well, she sent it off to the White House, and a few weeks later, she got a letter back from the White House telling her that her letter had been forwarded to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for investigation. And, um, uh, and then she eventually got a letter back from the EEOC that they had found in her favor, that having a policy, uh, for all the ways I've criticized the EEOC, they were able to see that a policy that uh, bans mothers and not fathers was, in fact, sex discrimination. That at least made sense to them. Um, and so um, they told her, you have your right to sue now. You can go to court. So she needed to get a lawyer. She hooked up with a lawyer um, who, uh, again, by this point she had moved to Jacksonville, 
and it's the late 1960s, and I, I, it's super segregated, Jim Crow all the way. I mean, this was the deep south. And as you can see, Ida Phillips was white, and the first attorney she went to was a white attorney who um, told her, in, in her words, that he, he didn't think it was worth fussing with, um, that there was nothing there. So she then thought, you know, who would understand something about bringing cases involving discrimination? I bet a black lawyer understands how to bring cases involving discrimination. So there was an African-American lawyer running for judge in Jacksonville. She contacted his office. He said, I'm too busy with the campaign. But I have this young associate, um, Reese Marshall, who's just started working with me after an internship he did um, with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Why don't you talk to him? Now, this should show you how uh, sort of um, uh, fringe the sex uh, provision of Title VII was. I got to meet Reese Marshall. He's still practicing in Florida. And he said that she came in and told her story, and, and he said it sounded wrong to him, but after she left the office, he had to make his way over to the bookcase and pull the statute book out and confirm, would this even be covered by the law? And he said, yeah, there it is, sex. It's right in there. I, I, I guess that this is against the law. So, uh, I mean, you know, so if attorneys have to do this, imagine what the judges were doing. Um, and um, so he decided to take her case. Um, at that time, in the late 1960s, all of the groups we think of as the big women's organizations that weigh in on these kinds of cases didn't exist. Now had just been founded in 1966, but was impossible to get a hold of anybody. They were so scattered around the country. The ACLU Women's Rights Project, where I work now, didn't exist. National Women's Law Center didn't exist. Um, you know, Fund for the Feminist Majority didn't exist. So he tried with a few of the racial justice groups to get some outside help, and no one was interested. They had bigger fish to fry with straight up race discrimination cases. So he pursued on his own. The case was denied at the district court level, and what the judge said was, he looked at the, and it was a he, he looked at the evidence that had been put forward by, by Martin Marietta, and Martin Marietta said, listen, our workforce is 70% women. Our, our assembly line is all women. How can we be guilty of sex discrimination? It's just this category of women, women with small children, that we want to carve out because we think that they're unreliable. And the judge, the district court judge said, you know, that makes sense. I don't think Congress was trying to get at these obvious rules of how uh, family duties are divided. This is obvious to all of us that this is how families run and how mothers operate. So um, I'm not going to strike this down as sex discrimination. Um, then they went before the Fifth Circuit, and again they lost. But what happened this time was that they had a very vigorous dissent. And it was a very vigorous dissent from a judge, who, um, uh, Judge Harold Brown, who uh, was very prominent in civil rights cases in general during this period. And he wrote this vigorous dissent saying, um, what, what has been approved here is sex plus discrimination. So it's not straight up sex discrimination because, yes, there are women working there. But it's sex plus another characteristic, sex plus motherhood. And he said, imagine all the other pluses that could be added to protected categories that would slowly start to carve away at the protections of Title VII. Blacks who are left-handed, Jews who have gone to college, um, and slowly but surely you're going you're gonna to carve out all of these different pieces of protected categories. And it, in his famous words at the end of the opinion, he said, if sex plus stands, the act is dead. Well, that 
seems like it was sufficient to get the attention of these larger national groups. And Reese Marshall finally got the NAACP Legal Defense Fund interested because, among other things, they were able to see how it um, affected um, African Americans, the, the race plus analogies I've, I've given you. But also, someone uh, had the light bulb go off that most working mothers at that time were African American. And so it didn't matter that, um, that Ida Phillips was white, as a mother of young children, if that rule stood, African-American mothers were going to be especially harmed. So an attorney from the, um, from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund argued the case. Um, amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, did pour in. At that point, now submitted something. The ACLU submitted something. Um, several other organizations submitted um, uh, briefs highlighting the demographics of who are mothers these days and what uh, and all the different plus categories just of women that could be carved out married women divorced women widowed women if you, and how many numbers of women would could be potentially barred from the workforce so um, the the oral argument which again I know it's asking you to nerd out but if you ever feel like going online there's this service called a website called oye.org and you can hear the oral arguments and I'm telling you, if you want a blast from the past, so the argument was in 1970. The decision was issued in 1971. It's the first Title VII case the court ever heard. They heard Griggs a week later. But it was the first Title VII case they had ever heard. And these guys are so nonplussed by what is going on. So you have... They don't understand what the sex provision was supposed to do. So you, you have poor Hugo Black saying... Okay, let me get this straight. If a woman wants to be a ditch digger, does the guy who hires ditch diggers have to hire her? <laughs> <laughs> and the Bill Robinson counsel for NAACP Legal Defense Fund says, yes, Justice Black. And then Justice Blackman, who just a couple years later writes, you know, Roe v. Wade, says, okay, right, what about this? What about you have a hospital... And all the nurses are women. But then a guy wants to become a nurse. Do they have to hire him? <laughs> and Bill Robinson says, yes, Justice Black. That's exactly, that's what discrimination because of sex means. <laughs> yes, that's now illegal. Then you have Chief Justice Warren Burger, who pipes up and says, this law doesn't apply to federal judges, right? <laughs> and Bill Robinson said, no, it does not, Justice, Chief Justice. And he said, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't, think, it, I didn't think it did. <laughs> and then he then goes on to opine that he, he asked the, the lawyer for Martin Marietta, what was this job anyway that Mrs. Phillips was applying for? And it was to be on the assembly line doing like lots of little intricate stuff with... Um, I'm sorry, I'm technophobic, but intricate stuff with, with little parts of computer boards, little parts, and you know, manual dexterity. And, uh, and Chief Justice Berger goes, oh, well, of course your workforce is mostly women. That's why women are such good secretaries, because they have so much dexterity. The Chief <laughs> Justice of the Supreme Court is saying this in open court as if it's like, you know, a scientific fact we all know, women are better. So, they were very confused. They took it under advisement. 
Thankfully, they managed to get over their befuddlement, although um, I do have a, a bit in the book drawn from the Brethren, the famous account of the, of the Burger Court, um, from one of the participants in his discussions in chambers about this case where he said he would never hire a woman clerk. Um, she always has to get home to make dinner for her husband and she can't be counted on. So he would never do that. And one of the clerks apparently gently pointed out that that might not be legal because even though he wasn't <laughs> covered by Title VII, there was the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution for public employees and he wouldn't hear any of it. And um, so... In any event, um, the ruling came down that, yes, this is, in case it wasn't obvious already, yes, this is an impermissible sex-based difference. Can't have different rules for mothers than for fathers. Not to get too celebratory, though, because they did have a, a little note saying, but this is enough of a possibility if, in reality that we think that Martin Marietta should be able to have a trial on the issue of whether mothers of young children are demonstrably less reliable than fathers of young children. So they left the door open that the company could make out a bona fide occupational qualification, which is an exception to Title VII, that it was a bona fide occupational qualification to, to not be a mother of small children. So, and Thurgood Marshall, bless his heart, wrote a you know impassioned dissent saying this is you know completely buying into all the stereotypes that Title VII was supposed to get rid of. The good news is they settled the case before there was ever such a trial and that any, before any other court had to actually determine whether that is a real, not just a stereotype, but a reality. Um, and, uh, you know, and a postscript, although it, it left this terrific um, precedent that, you know, sex plus categories, subcategories of protected groups are also protected by Title VII, which has become immensely important, um, especially in the realm of intersectionality, where you have women um, presenting multiple identities, and you might have a workplace, very commonly workplace where white women are doing hunky-dory, and women of color are underpaid or not getting promoted or all manner of other kinds of disadvantages. Older women are another group um, that face a lot of barriers. Um, so that is an incredibly important, enduring precedent, as well as just uh, support for the notion that discrimination on the basis of motherhood is sex discrimination. Um, sadly, um, uh, as often happens with in, in real life, um, it turned out when they were settling the case that um, Martin Marietta had had a layoff very, very shortly after um, Ms. Mrs. Phillips had attempted to get hired, and so her act, and she would have been eligible for the for the for the um, layoff, and so her actual back pay losses were actually quite small, um, and she only got $15,000. So she was a waitress to the end of her life. Um, she died as a result of not having health insurance. Um, she had lung cancer, um, and when she got her $15,000, she gave it, she divvied it up as follows. She gave her oldest daughter, um, Peggy, who's on the far left in this picture, um, uh, the down payment for a house, um, she took Gracie to Disney World, and uh, she bought air conditioning in her house for the first time since she lived in Florida her whole adult life. So, um, so that's Ida Phillips. Not, not a whole lot herself to show for it, but extremely proud um, of what she'd accomplished. And I, I met with three of her children. By the way, she had passed away um, by the time I was working on the book. So um, I got her you know, voice through her, three of her kids whom I met, um, as well as the letter to LBJ um, and speaking to her um, attorney. Um, I feel I got a, um, a, at least a, a, a close approximation of, of um, what she was like. And, um, and she was a redhead, by the way. You can't tell from this picture. Um, 
Moving on to the issue of um, stereotypes. Um, uh, this is Anne Hopkins and her three kids. Um, Anne Hopkins was a um, consultant at Price Waterhouse. Um, you probably now know it as Price Waterhouse Coopers, um, but back in the day it was one of the big eight accounting firms. Um, very male dominated, very, very lucrative, high powered job. Um, and uh, Anne Hopkins had a background in um, math and um, aeronautics. Um, and she uh, worked for about eight years at Price Waterhouse, and then she went up for partner in 1980, 82. And um, she was one of 88 candidates, the only woman to go up. She also had the biggest book of business of any of the candidates who went up. She had brought in the most clients, um, including the State Department, um, and uh, other, other um, government clients. She worked in the division where they would work with government agencies to help them become more efficient, to overhaul their uh, you know, payroll procedures, their computer procedures, and so forth. Well, she got the word that she hadn't made partners. She hadn't been denied, but she'd been held over for the next year. And she was baffled because she had the full support of, of her department, but it was all the partners who had voted. And then she sat down with the head of the whole organization to have him start explaining to her why she had not received it. And as she described it in a later book of her own that she wrote, she sat there listening in horror because it was nothing about how she related to clients. It was nothing about the business she brought in or her skills. It was about how she looked and how she acted. So there were comments that she needed a course at charm school, that she swore too much for a lady partner, that she overcompensated for being a woman and was macho. Um, and then she went to her mentor within the organization. I've, I've always thought this was especially interesting, that this, this man who had promoted her and thought he was helping her, his feedback to her when she said, how am I going to make it next time? This is me. What can I change about this to, to have any better luck next time? And he said, well, why don't you try to walk more femininely, talk more femininely, dress more femininely, get your hair styled, and wear makeup and jewelry. That was his advice. She did buy a pink suit. <laughs> she did try, but it did not matter. And the next time around, she actually did not get the recommendation of her department, and her career was clearly over, and so she quit. And so she sued, and um, uh, it was very interesting because, of course, this is the early 80s, so the feminist movement, as we think of it, with the marching in the street and, and you know, Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and all the rest, um, <clears throat> we think of happening in the, in the late 60s and in the 70s. But Anne Hopkins admitted to me that really the, the women's movement kind of passed her by. Um, whether by you know choice or by necessity, living in the world she was living in of all men and needing to be you know um, tough and driven, it just sort of never went on her radar, and she was never conscious, she said, of of being a woman in this world. Um, and she really, for quite some time, continued in persisting and thinking this was just a bad business decision not to promote her. Why had they done something so stupid? And it was only when she went to her attorney, who I was privileged to get to meet, one of her attorneys, the other unfortunately had passed away, um, and talked to him where he, he asked her in her, his first meeting with her, well, tell me about how are women treated there? You know, tell me about how, it's, how you're treated when you have to go home and you have a sick kid, because she had three children, um, two of whom she'd had while she was at Price Waterhouse and had taken two weeks off um, after a cesarean. And um, she... Uh, uh, 
and, and he, she couldn't answer any of his questions. She wasn't attuned to, I don't know how women are treated. I just know how I'm treated. And it, it, none of it permeated that it was because she was a woman for how she was treated. And so um, Doug Huron, the lawyer that I'm referring to, had a light bulb go off, especially once he started reading all of the um, reviews from the managers that I, that I referenced before. He started reading them and also seeing how they described men who had similar kind of abrasive personalities um, and the extent to which they were not you know, hindered by having those problems. Um, and he got the idea, he thought, you know, in Brown versus Board of Education and in some other race discrimination cases, social science has been put forward to explain how racism works and its effect on the you know target of racism and how it affects you know how we perceive what people are supposed to act like those are called prescriptive stereotypes your expectations for how someone will act and proscriptive you know if you're a woman you're definitely not supposed to swear or um, you know look like you just you know got up and showered your hair and washed, walked out the door so he engaged a young social scientist and this case became the first time that social science which is now really routine in um, employment discrimination cases to try to help judges and juries understand how discrimination happens now that most people are not you know, using the N-word or saying, I don't want a woman in this job, but are more subtle in, in their bias. Um, he got a social scientist um, named Susan Fisk who was finishing up at Carnegie Mellon, and she had worked already on one particular case involving a woman who had been denied a promotion um, at the FBI. Um, in similar circumstances. So she agreed to review all of the data about um, Ann Hopkins' um, denial of partnership and then issue an expert opinion. Very interestingly, she never met Ann Hopkins. She, she, she said, I was adamant. I didn't want to have my own opinions about Ann Hopkins and whether she was or wasn't abrasive. I wanted to look at the evidence about what they thought of her and reach conclusions. Um, anyway, a particularly moving moment to me, you know, knowing what I knew about um, about Ann Hopkins, um, you know, resistance to understanding this as something gender related, is that they did finally meet um, when when Fisk came to court at the trial to give her testimony, and afterwards, uh, Ann Hopkins met her in the hallway and shook her hand and said, "Thank you. Now I understand what happened to me." Um, and I thought that was very moving and also so sad, you know, for someone to have taken away from them the idea that it's just, if I work hard enough, I'm going to get there. Um, the judge in the case actually was the son of a child psychologist, um, Judge Gazelle. And so he really, he got it and he really liked Fisk um, and, and, and understood it. So he issued an opinion in, in um, Hopkins' favor. Um, it was um, reversed at the district court level. Um, and they, you know, there was, um, uh, you know, disagreement about whether this, this um, psychology, uh, you know, stuff uh, meant anything or if it was just airy-fairy hypothesizing. And then the case went to the Supreme Court, and the court found, the court reversed, and the court found, um, you know what, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I got confused. She won at the at circuit court level, I apologize, there was a very vigorous dissent that was talking about <coughs> Susan Fisk and her making up out of whole cloth this airy-fairy idea of feelings, and, you know, that, 
Um, that was not what mattered. Um, and then the Supreme Court agreed that, um, that uh, and it ended up being a case that stood for a lot of other propositions that are sort of beyond today's talk, but basically the notion that there were some legitimate criticisms of Ann Hopkins' behavior. There were some examples, especially of her treating staff not all that well. And so the idea that, you know, it, that is legitimate for an employer to care about. But this, this was a case of mixed motive. It could be proven that it made a difference um, to her chances that all these other sexist ideas about her not conforming to what a woman is supposed to be like, that those made the difference. And so in the process, it was extraordinary precedent going forward for anyone, male or female, um, uh, you know, cisgender or transgender, to, um, to, to be able to say, you know, you have certain ideas about what men and women are supposed to be, and my not conforming with that is sex discrimination. It's not just a matter of opinion, or you're, you're punishing me for not conforming, is sex discrimination. And that has been an incredible source of progress um, for trans um, employees. Um, oddly, it has been not as helpful for LGB employees, although there are a number of cases <coughs> excuse me, in the pipeline um, seeking to establish that. Because really, what is the ultimate sex stereotype but that a woman is supposed to be attracted to men and vice versa? Um, so... Um, but the stereotype um, model of discrimination, stereotype evidence providing direct evidence of bias, um, has become um, understood and accepted in all forms of discrimination cases. Motherhood discrimination cases, you know, assuming you're not going to be um, committed to the job, you know, race stereotype cases, disability stereotypes, it's become widely accepted and had really, I, I think it's one of the most important cases ever decided by the court when it comes to not just women's rights, but employees' rights. <clears throat> oh, uh, sorry, I, I always forget to do the, the epilogue of what happened to people. Um, so Anne Hopkins, this is the other thing that shows what a badass she was. Um, Anne Hopkins... Um, <laughs> Uh, at the, when the case was remanded after she won at the Supreme Court, she yet again won in front of that, that same first judge. And for the relief, you know, under Title VII, you're entitled to all sorts of things, the back pay, uh, you know, emotional distress. Well, at that, at that time, the law didn't provide for emotional distress damages. But your attorney's fees, um, you know, maybe out-of-pocket expenses you've incurred um, because of the job loss. She wanted partnership at Price Waterhouse. And this judge just kept saying, there are all these statements on the record, like, why, for the love of God, <laughs> do you want to go back in with these people? And it was just, I earned it, it's a matter of principle, I worked for it, I want to be there. So she admitted some trepidation to going back, and it's, you know, it's weird. The people you started out with who made partner when you should have have now been partners for eight years. You know, it's, it's sort of like having to like, be held back in school and be like, oversized at your desk, kind of. She, you know, she felt a little self-conscious, um, but she ended up staying for 10 more years, and then they, she would have stayed longer. They revised their retirement program, and it became extremely appealing for her to retire. But the thing that's really extraordinary is she's one of the, one of the people in the book, I think, who was among the most transformed because she went back into that environment, and no more was she blind to what was going on around her. She took on herself the, the role of being a diversity champion. And even when I interviewed her, you know, 15 years after she had left the organization, she could still name 
people she had mentored, uh, especially um, um, consultants of color, not just, not just women, um, who had made partner based on her mentorship. Um, she had a great quote, by the way, I'll just say really quickly, when she was sitting in a partnership meeting and um, one of the, you know, dudes sitting there, uh, talk, you know, sort of shook his head sadly about the lack of good candidates um, for partner, lack of good diverse candidates for partnership. And it's just, you know, they're just, you know, it's just we can't, uh, you know, we're not finding him, we're not catching him. And she said, then start fishing in another body of water. <laughs> Which I thought pretty much summed it up. But, you know, to go back under that cloud and to take on this role as opposed to putting your head down and just, just muddling through and hoping you didn't have any problems, I think took a great deal of courage, as if the previous eight years of litigation hadn't taken a, a great deal of courage as well. Okay, last, sexual harassment. Um, I mean, this is a toughie. The, the, the facts of um, these cases are really hard to hear. And um, just putting that um, sort of, you know, heads up there that the facts of this particular case, the, the Michelle Vincent case, which was the first time that the Supreme Court acknowledged sexual harassment as sex discrimination, uh, has horrible facts in it. Um, just, to, just to set up, tee up where things were when her case came before the court in... Um, in the mid-1980s. It was decided in 1986. Um, slowly but surely, through the 70s, women had started bringing um, sexual harassment cases as Title VII violations. Um, courts, the only time courts were acknowledging them as being actionable sex discrimination, and they were fitful, and, and it took a few sort of you know bad lower court rulings being overturned. They could understand if it was quid pro quo Harassment that it was illegal and quid pro quo is 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 this for that, meaning the sort of evergreen stereotyped sexual harassment of sleep with me or you're fired, uh, or sleep with me and you'll get this promotion. Courts were able eventually. It took them a while. For a while, they just said, well, you know, this is an interpersonal relationship that's gone sour. They they didn't this because sexuality is something that exists in all of us outside the workplace and because no one was authorized to be actually harassing anybody they had a really hard time understanding how this was related to the job and job rights so but eventually you know the gears turn and they start to get it the um (laughs) that if if the harassment had a tangible impact so if the woman refused and was fired okay she has no paycheck. That hurts her wallet. That's tangible. If she wants the promotion and she doesn't sleep with the boss and she doesn't get the promotion, that's tangible. They can measure that. But the notion that you you know say no and nothing happens, so the only harm is the you know disgust and demoralization and the degradation of having endured the advances at all. This idea of environmental or psychological impact as, as making a, a harm, they couldn't get it um, and didn't recognize it. Um, the EEOC, um, by this point, I know I bashed them uh, in their early years, but they did eventually get it together. And they, they had, it was very much thanks to a cadre of women, and there should be more known about that. They're sort of like hidden figures, right? They're, like, they're the ones who pushed the agency forward. In fact, one of them left to go run the, run the National Organization for Women. Um, they finally pushed the agency forward to start acknowledging these cases. And one thing they did in 1980 under Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, now a congresswoman from, from D.C., 
um, was to um, put forward a, a guidance um, for employers and for lawyers and for judges on sexual harassment and, and saying, in our opinion, in our expert opinion, didn't have the force of law, but in our expert opinion, um, harassment is illegal, including coworker harassment and including environmental harassment. But no court, um, uh, the Supreme Court had, had not acknowledged it. Only the D.C. Circuit had acknowledged it. And Michelle Vinson was lucky enough to have her case ultimately heard. Um, so her case has a happy ending, but a very, very unhappy beginning. Um, she uh, grew up in a very, um, pardon me, in a very um, uh, distressed area of Washington, D.C., in northeast Washington, um, and at, had a very troubled um, growing up, tried to run away, um, intentionally got pregnant at age 15 so that she could marry a family friend. That was the only way you could get married at that age. Ultimately lost that pregnancy. The marriage was unhappy. Um, really not a lot of support on the home front. She um, had an account at a local bank, um, Capital Savings Bank, and she knew the um, branch manager. And she one day, Sydney Taylor, asked him for a job as a teller. And he hired her and he mentored her. And uh, uh, as you can see, Michelle Vincent is African-American. He also was African-American, which meant a lot to her to have this you know, pillar of the community taking her under his arm and teaching her. And for everything was pretty OK for about six months, although she was not comfortable with how she saw him interacting with other women. Um, but she, you know, like a lot of the judges I was just referring to, considered it, oh, it must be a personal thing that I don't know anything about. Um, Sydney Taylor took her out to dinner one night, um, which was not, also not unusual. They had gone out to dinner, but they went out to dinner, and that night he said, you are going to fuck me tonight. And he said, I made you, and I can break you, and I will if you don't. And so she did. And she continued to for three years. And... He raped her, and I call it rape. The courts said they, you know, they had had sex 40 to 50 more times. To me, it's rape. It was under duress. It was never consensual from her standpoint. Um, and uh, you know, none of the none of the tangible harms came to her. She uh, kept her job. She continued to advance the company, and at least that was never put into. Um, dispute in the case that she deserved uh, the promotions that she got. She was good at her job, which is another force, by the way, that keeps you staying. Like, why should I have to leave? Uh, but she also, um, in her own words in a, in a later article, said, you know, I believed him when he said he would kill me. And um, he had shown himself to be physically threatening to her on a number of occasions. And she also had no self-esteem, had no idea that she could go anywhere. I mean, think, today we have the benefit of things like sexual harassment policies and trainings and classes that tell you that things are illegal. At that time, she didn't, you know, there was no, no message telling her that any of this was illegal. And in fact, the only policy that she had to refer to was, a, was an anti-discrimination policy. And it didn't mention harassment, obviously, because that word did not exist yet. Um, and the person she was supposed to complain to if she thought she was being discriminated against was Sidney Taylor. So anyway, um, she, she, was, she was stuck. So she finally, um, in getting a divorce, consulted with an attorney uh, with whom I, I spoke, who was, who was terrific, but also herself very clueless about what rights you know, women had at that time. And, uh, and in, in talking about the divorce, she poured out her heart to this lawyer. The lawyer got her hooked up with an employment attorney who took her on. 
and she went to trial, and the trial was a disaster. The trial was, there are all sorts of rules of evidence now about what kinds of information about um, a complaining um, party, you know, what can be brought forward about her sexual history and her behavior, and also all sorts of evidence about what kind of evidence you're able to introduce about the behavior of the alleged harasser and you know potential patterns of evidence but none of that existed at the time so she wasn't allowed to introduce testimony about other from other women who had had similar issues with him and been fired or other problems with him but women who were sympathetic to him and there was evidence that there might have been affairs going on with him, women who were sympathetic to him got on the stand and talked about how scantily dressed Michelle Vinson was and how tight her pants were and how low cut her blouses were and how she talked about sexual fantasies and all sorts of um, you know, conduct that are designed to make it look like she you know, asked for it. So the judge um, at this time there were no jury trials so it was a judge hearing all the evidence the judge found in the bank's favor in this unbelievably this decision that makes no sense he, he, he didn't reach any sort of conclusions and yet found against her he said if sex occurred I'm not, I'm not convinced sex occurred at all i.e. I'm not con- convinced I believe Michelle Vinson but if sex occurred I believe it was consensual now P.S. P. Sidney Taylor had said I never touched her so the judge was believing, if there had been sex, that Sidney Taylor had lied about it. But he was believing Sydney Ta- he was believing that it was consensual, even though Sidney Taylor said there was no sex, and even though she said there was no consent. So they took it up to the um, D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit had just the previous year acknowledged the hostile environment um, framework as actionable, so they applied that to this case as well. And then we're up to the Supreme Court, very dramatic in that the lawyer for um, Michelle Vinson was really a newbie and not very um, on top of the situation. Um, she showed up for her, fr- you guys have heard of mooting, right? You go do a moot court before you go do a big argument like this. You know, all these intellectuals and arrayed in front of you asking you mock questions. She showed up, she showed up from, from the mooting thinking it was going to be a brainstorming session. So poor thing, you know, so all these women's advocates were like, this is our one chance, and this is the person we've got in front of us. And so there were all these efforts to try to get Catherine McKinnon to argue it, or Lawrence Tribe to argue it, and this woman was like, I've been with her from the beginning, which I understand, but she did not know what she was doing. And she, in fact, was stuck in a cab getting to the court on argument day, and Catherine McKinnon was at the clerk's office saying, I'll do the argument, because they <laughs> didn't think she was going to make it. Anyway, it's like an anxiety dream, right? That you're <laughs> I have to be at the Supreme Court in 10 minutes. <laughs> and the guy's like, mm, uh-huh. Doing the best I can. Anyway, so she did get there. It was a little bumpy, I'm not going to lie. She cited California evidence law. Not ideal, but through people like Sandra Day O'Connor, because by now we have a woman on the court, kind of, you know, pitching some softballs and maybe, you know, it sounds like what you're trying to say is. And anyway, she finished and she won. It was unanimous. 
And the court said, very interestingly, analogized to racial harassment, where there was no doubt that this was discrimination. And it's because there wasn't this thing mucking it up of potential desire, right? No one thinks that if KKK is scratched into someone's desk or a noose is hung over someone's desk or they're called the N-word, no one thinks that there's potential that it's just a personal relationship gone badly. That's discrimination. And what the court said was, um, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of, um, it's the same as having to run a gauntlet of racist harassment, to have to run a gauntlet of sexual abuse. Um, they, in, they included the requirement that the harassment be unwelcome and that it had to be severe or pervasive so as to get around the idea of liability arising out of um, you know, one ill-advised compliment that turns out not to be welcome or whatever. Uh, it has to be severe or pervasive. There's another case in the book that then addresses, well, what's the standard for liability when, I mean, Michelle Vinson was raped. I mean, this, this was criminal conduct, not just violating Title VII. What about when the, when the facts fall short of that line that are still egregious, where the harassment is purely verbal, no physical, where the harassment is maybe um, um, visual, you know, in terms of porn being um, in the work site, things like that. Um, and so the court adopt, adopted a, you know, not scientifically um, precise, but another standard that also said, yes, that also is discriminatory. The, the famous line in that case was, um, Title VII comes into play before um, the victim has a nervous breakdown. Um, so it doesn't have to be so bad that you're like Michelle Vinson basically thinking about killing yourself um, before it becomes illegal. It's when a reasonable person would find it um, to create a, a hostile work environment. So obviously not scientific, but it's intended to um, you know, get rid of like the little snowflakes who can't take you know, anything um, being said to them and having to wait until it's um, up to the level of a Michelle Vinson. So I think I'll stop there. It's not leaving a ton of time for questions, but almost 10 minutes. Um, uh, and I'm happy to, to tell more about cases in the book, the process of writing it, what the hell we do now, where we are in this point in time. Yes? Was there an interview or a person that you met that was really surprising? The question was, was there an interview or person I met who was really surprising? Um, I mean, I knew all of them were going to be pretty, you know, pretty formidable in some way. And, of course, I didn't get to meet Ida Phillips. And I didn't get to meet the women in the Manhart case or the Johnson Controls case. And I didn't get to meet Michelle Vinson. So with that caveat, um, you know, I think I was really surprised by, um, it's not a case I've discussed today, but it's one that sort of falls into the stereotype kind of theme of Dothard v. Rawlinson, which was a case from 1977. It was litigated by the Southern Poverty Law Center when they were still just a three-attorney outfit. Um, and it involved women who um, uh, well, it started with two plaintiffs, and then one of them was out of the case um, after she succeeded at the lower court level. It was a woman who wanted to be a state trooper and a woman who wanted to be a prison guard in Alabama in the 70s. And... Um, Alabama prisons in the 70s had just been found to violate the Eighth Amendment because they were so um, horrific and brutal. Um, you know, people with mental illness housed side by side with people convicted of triple homicides, housed with people who had petty thefts. It was a very dangerous place to be. And Kim Rawlinson, the one who wanted to be the, the prison guard, was... Um, 
she had such an amazing story of such fortitude, you know, to, to pursue these cases, especially when you're pursuing a case where where she was pursuing a job that everyone said is for a man. And what's wrong with you? Why do you want to do this? And um, you know, she was this petite, I don't have her picture, unfortunately. I sometimes include her picture. This petite blonde, I mean, she looked like Olivia Newton-John or something, like with this feathered you know, hair. And, um, uh, and her family never understood her. You know, they, it, she grew up in Montgomery in the, in the 50s and 60s and regularly heard the N-word. And no one you know, talked about the Montgomery bus boycott in any sort of an informed way. So she said already, I felt like, who, who dropped me off in this family already? So to already be kind of a loner and then just decide, she took forensic psychology in college and just fell in love with it and said, she, as she said, it just ticked a box inside of me, bing. This is what I want. And so to pursue that when her family was telling her she was an embarrassment to the family, her father ran a real estate business and they said it was hurting business. Um, you know, to have no one around you telling you you're doing the right thing except for your lawyers. Um, I think I hadn't, I, could, I hadn't really understood that anybody would pursue something like, I mean, she didn't know it was going to be a Supreme Court case when she started, but that someone would go through this experience with no support and be at, remain dedicated through the whole thing. She was that sure of herself. Um, another sad epilogue, I will say, is that she only got to work in as a correctional officer for five years, and then some sort of investigation got opened about her conduct, and it was never revealed what the investigation was about, and I couldn't find out what it was about, and nothing was ever concluded of that she had... I mean, I think it was just a complete blackballing. And so she left, because she couldn't get promoted, she couldn't transfer, she couldn't get a raise. So she left. So it's very sad that this person who was that committed, you know, um, went that far with, and had so little to show for it. But her story I found very, very... Um, inspirational for that reason. And, and Michelle Vincent, too. She had nobody um, around her, and everybody was telling her she was a slut and she was the one who was to blame. So I think they, they sort of struck the... So it's not a surprise more than a... Um, I was really awed by them in a way I hadn't expected. Yeah? Um, I'm kind of in the what-the-hell-next category. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> um, I really, I, well, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on the next four years, but I was specifically thinking about um, what the trans community and trans advocates can learn from the evolution of Title VII. Well, I think they've already learned it. I mean, I think, so taking that question first, I think, um, and there's actually a, um, I'm not saying this to blow my own horn, I'm saying it to, or ACLU's own horn, own horn, but to explain that this argument is very out there. Um, there have been a series of cases involving LGB um, discrimination where the ACLU, with the Women's Rights Project and the L LGBT Project have submitted a brief on behalf of a bunch of women's organizations. So not the usual suspect sort of, of the LGBT groups in support of LGB coverage, but women's groups who have said, look at what we started with. We started with because of sex. We started with it was a fluke conceived out of wedlock. Like the whole body of case law defining what sex discrim discrimination is is judge made with a little bit of you know input from the EEOC along the way. 
It's, but it's had to be created as times have changed and situations have come up and we've come to understand that you know, making a woman run a gauntlet of sexual abuse isn't you know, an appropriate um, burden to place on her. And, and you know, then on call that, that men can harass other men because of sex. And so it's, it's been a constant process of expansion, not contraction in defining what sex discrimination is. And sex stereotyping and the, the several decisions that have acknowledged that gender identity is part of that bundle um, is the best example to point to for sexual orientation. I mean, how do you even disentangle like your gender identity from your orientation? They're different, but they're you know entwined. So that I mean, so that's the argument: is that is that sex discrimination has always been a moving and growing target. Um, um, as far as the you know, what do we do now? I mean, that's the one thing that's good about being a litigator where, you know, the courts are still open to me. He hasn't, you know, um, and I'm sorry, we're nonpartisan, so I'm just, to, to, you know, officially. So, but I mean, the reality <laughs> is, the reality is that my issues are not issues that are of concern to this administration. So thinking about realities of courts, uh, you know, appointments of judges and so forth, you know, that hasn't, cut, you know, gone into motion yet. Um, you know, I, there's a lot to fear, I think, from, from Congress, but, you know, actually, you know, overturning Title VII, no, that's not going to happen. So, you know, there is some comfort that I can keep kind of plugging away, you know, representing people, and, and I think the difference that will affect me is uh, the most is that the the EEOC and the Department of Labor and the president in terms of executive orders um, where he could issue executive orders that impacted the employment practices of um, the federal government and federal contractors um, and be progressive even if laws couldn't get amended in Congress or even if lawsuits were unsuccessful. So, you know, the extent to which the, I mean, the EEOC has been a driving force behind LGBT you know, cases, for instance. Um, I am hopeful that they, that that will continue. And in fact, a friend of mine from the agency just texted me as I was coming in here that their Arizona office just, so it's officially under President Trump, and the Arizona district office of the EEOC just filed, um, I'm not sure if it's a T case or an LGB case, but one of them, um, against a restaurant chain. You know, there are 15 district offices of the EEOC, and so he's going to have control over the next chair of it, but the other members of the the five-member commission are continuing for terms that go forward, and they only have to approve certain categories of litigation. Otherwise, it's left up to the 15 district offices, and they're all, you know, in my experience, um, fairly progressive and and are going to keep fighting these fights. Um, you know, I don't know if the kibosh will ever be put on them, but um, and then you know the executive orders will stop and they will likely be rescinded. The ones that did exist around pay transparency um, for and sex discrimination um, and uh, EEO one pay discrimination, you know, pay data collection and also the LGBT. Um, we're we're in the process of understanding more from the. Um, it, it administrative regulation side, how much of that can be, when, th- when there's been notice and comment already about some of these employment regulations, how much those can be yanked back or not. We're still assessing that. 
Any other questions? I oh, we we're out of time. time. I'm sorry. Oh, right. Sure. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.